Well, we're going to continue reading in Revelation 7, picking up at verse 9. And John records for us, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sometimes there are certain things we really need to be reminded of. And as you go through Scripture, it's very often at a time when people are most needed to be reminded of a truth that God reminds them of it. We see that with Abraham. God renewed his promise to them that he would be the father of many nations. In him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he says, well, how? And rather than telling him how, God redirected where he was looking because that was the best answer he took him out he says look up all right start counting the stars <laughs> when you're finished come back and tell me how many there are so shall your descendants be and abraham believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness he got it didn't he the one who made the stars who no one can number can do anything. As Jeremiah would put it many years later, there's nothing too hard for you. The Lord is the God of all flesh. There's nothing too hard for him. And when we turn to the book of Revelation, there's something very similar happening here. The promises that God had made to the, through Jesus to the disciples before he ascended into heaven were, were amazing, weren't they? that they were to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, to baptize and to teach people everything that he had taught them. And yet as they looked around them, it seemed, I'm sure, as impossible and unlikely as the fact that Abraham, who couldn't have any children, would be the, the father of a great nation, and in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. So what does God do here in the book of Revelation? But very often, he directs 
the gaze of John, and, and through John, the, the, the churches to whom he's writing to, he, he redirects their gaze from the situation that they're in, a situation of rejection by and large by the Jewish people and increasing difficulty and scrutiny from the Roman Empire, all of which seem to say, well, so much for the promises, and he redirects the gaze upwards. And we see that particularly here in this section in uh, Revelation 7. God has uh, revealed to John the, the, the fact that his wrath is going to be uh, poured out. But before that, he gives him a vision of God's people and who they are and how the promises that are made for them and to them will be uh, fulfilled. As these judgments of God are about to unfold at Jesus' command, something happens there's a priority before even the judgment of God that is poured out, and that is the security of his people. They are sealed. And we see the, the people of God here under two very different pictures, the 144,000 and the vast multitude that no one can number. I'm going to suggest to you that these aren't two different groups of people, but they're the same group of people viewed in very different uh, light. Their gaze is then directed to the active presence of God at the very center of the universe. And this reality of who God is and him being in control of all things is the guarantee that, yes, the judgment on the wicked will come and should come and must come. But just as sure, if we could dare say it even more sure, is the salvation of his people. This throne that John's gaze and, and through him our gaze is directed to speaks of royal authority. Not just any royal authority, but the royal authority of him who later on is described as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And your relationship to the one who is seated on the throne is the key to whether you experience judgment from the throne or salvation from the throne. As we go through this amazing picture that, that John has given, there's a, a number of things are, are, we are reminded of a number of things. First of all, that God has fulfilled and is in the process of fulfilling and will fulfill his promise to Abraham. That's why the, the great multitude are described as great multitudes which no one could number. It's a reference back, isn't it, to that first picture that Abraham has given of the stars in heaven. Can you number them? Of course you can. So shall your descendants be. And then linked to that, God's people are defined or described under these two pictures. One highly symbolic, because the promise first comes to Abraham, and it's very specific Remember Abraham, in a few chapters after the one we read, he fathers a son, Ishmael, and he believes, well, maybe it's through Ishmael that God's promise will come. And God says, no, it's through Isaac, the son you haven't got yet, but the son that you will have through the, through the humanly impossible, but the divinely possible, the, the promise will be fulfilled. Then, of course, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. God says, Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. It's through, through Jacob and his descendants. And that's why I think the people of God here are, are pictured in this symbolic way as the, the tribes are, are listed out. But then there, 
they're pictured in, in the more realistic way as not just the people of God limited to one nation, but from all tongues and tribes and people and nations. And, and in, in, in contrast to the first picture, you can't number them at all. And they're in God's presence. They're ascribing to him and to him alone and to his grace to them their, their, their wonderful condition. So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. In verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne of God and the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Well, there's a number of things we can note here about the people of God. Firstly, and very obviously, they are numerous. And as I've said already, this is a reference back to God's covenant with Abraham. He is assured of two things in that covenant. First of all, the, the great number of his descendants and that he will be a blessing or his seed will be a blessing to all nations. And these two aspects of the pro promise flow together here in this description of the people. You cannot number them, but also they're, they're from every tribe and kindred and, and, and a nation and people. I think there's a number of things we're meant to, to learn from that. Let's be honest, often as Christians, we're tempted to estimate the number of people who are likely to be saved, maybe in our locality or even in our family or among those whom we work. And we do it based on our very unreliable here and now experience. And yet the scripture here is, I, I think, doing with us like God did with Abraham. It's taking us out of our experience and challenge us to look up. Don't judge things by what's happening here and now. Judge them by what God has promised. And how different, I think, our attitude to evangelism, to discipleship, to everything would be if we spent more time looking up and less time looking around. And I think that's one of the reasons that scriptures like this are given to us, that we, we have to see things as God sees them. And what we see when we see things as God sees them is that no promise of his remains unfulfilled, or dare I say it can remain unfulfilled. Remember, this is given to John in the first century when the, the church is a really a, a struggling community. Humanly speaking, you would have thought, well, they're hardly likely to survive. They're already rejected by the Jewish community from which they come. Uh, and, and because of that, they're now very vulnerable in the Roman Empire, which gave a special dispensation to the Jews to worship their God alone. But now they're not Jews anymore, so they come under the full weight of, of, of Roman law they're probably not going to survive. And if you judge the promises of God based on what you would see happening as a first century Christian, you would have been very gloomy and depressed indeed. And so, just like Abraham, John, and these early Christians, through this revelation, are challenged to not simply look around, but more importantly, to look up. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the task of God's people, 
The task of the Dock Baptist Church, let's make it personal, is not to try and limit or define the number of those who are chosen, but to humbly reassure ourselves, to joyfully reassure ourselves that by God's grace, we are part of that chosen number. And in thankfulness to God, to reach out expectantly to those around us that God might bring them to know him too. So we see that these people are from all over the world. And it reminds us of, of the, what Christ has commanded us to do in the Great Commission is not an impossible task. It's impossible, humanly speaking, but it's not impossible uh, for him. Next, we're going to look at the activity of God's people as we see it in verses 10 to 12. Look at verse 10 crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As John looks at this fulfillment of God's promise, he sees something, in a sense, that's very familiar. The church in its fulfilled condition, as he's allowed to glimpse it from the first century, is doing exactly what the church is, or at least should be doing now. Putting their focus on God through Jesus and ascribing all that has happened to them through him. The entire focus of this great multitude from all the nations is God and Jesus, praising him for what he has done in their salvation. And it's so much so that their praise of him is the key to, to causing this to echo all around the throne with that same, that same praise. And here we see humanity, or, or this new humanity, this new creation that, that, that God has, has called into being out of the, the old, lost, sinful world, finally fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. Because what they're doing here is they're reflecting His glory. They're, they're living now as human beings were meant to live all along, acknowledging God for who He is, and thanking him for all that he has done. If you remember, that's what Adam and Eve had failed to do in the Garden of Eden. That's where the, the problem started, isn't it? So as God puts together this new creation, it is now doing infallibly and eternally what the, the old creation had been purposed for in the first place. So the activity of God's people in this glimpse that John sees is, is perfectly and eternally what we're, we're even doing now as God's people as we struggle through the experience of the world as it now is. Now, linked to that, we have what I call the standing of God's people or the position of God's people in verses 13 to 15. And it starts off with a rhetorical question. One of the elders asks a question, which we know he knows the answer to because he gives the answer later on, but he's asking this question to, to refocus John on something very important. Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? What's this all about? Where did these people come from? John says to them, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So one of these elders, a symbolic representation of God's people, asks this key question. Who are these people? How did they get here? You know, it's good that we keep coming back to that question. That, that's, in a sense, the question that's posed by the song Amazing Grace that we started with, isn't it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. How did that happen? Sir, you know. See, there's only one possible way that people like we are and still would be could arrive and find acceptance before the throne of God. Not anything that we have done for God, but what God has done for us. They are before the throne of God because of what God, through Jesus, has done for them. And, and shown them that now by belonging to him, being, being identified with him, even at the point of suffering for his name's sake. This is what I believe uh, is referred here in this, the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation really is a description of the world as it now is. Remember, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but do not fear, I have overcome this world. Now they're, they're entering into the full experience of that. They've been taken from this world of trouble and are now enjoying the uninterrupted presence of God. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul reminds Timothy, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's, that's the way it is. We, we need to factor that in. It's, it's not a surprise. You know, why do we seem surprised, Peter says, at the fiery trial that's coming upon us? Jesus had reminded us that that's the way it's going to be. Paul had reminded Timothy of it. Now at the end of the New Testament, this message is being reiterated. Suffering for the faith is normal, but, but this is where it leads to. But it's important to note here the source of the righteousness of these people. And that's symbolized in the whiteness uh, of their robes. It's not that these people have suffered for Christ, and that has made them worthy, but that Christ has suffered for them, and that has made them worthy by being identified with him to suffer for his name's sake. Their robes are white, not because their blood has been shed for Christ, although it has, but because his blood has been shed, for, first of all, for them. It's a great theme in John's writing, because we love him because he first loved us. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All of this is down to the grace of God. It is this that is the source of their intimate acceptance by God. It's this too that enables them and us to serve him continually as his New Testament uh, priesthood. Look at how John stresses this. Therefore, because of this, because of what God has done for them in the shedding of Jesus' blood, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This is a, an echo of uh, that amazing vision that he has at the very beginning of the Revelation. 
where he talks about Jesus uh, as being the one who has washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. All of life now, not just when we get to heaven or to the new heavens and the new earth, but all of life now can and should be an act of worship to God. We are. We don't go to his temple. This building is not the temple of God. It's the people who are here this morning in this building who are the temple of the living God. We are forever in his presence. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Literally, he will spread his tabernacle over them. A link to this in verses 15 to 17 is the security of God's people. Because of all that God has done for them, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. That's the, the, what, what we're occupied in doing, and, and fully so in, in eternity. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And so we move seamlessly from what God has done for his people, how we are preoccupied in praising him and thanking him for that, to the security that we have in all of this. And the security starts and ends with the presence of God. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. As we said, literally spread his tabernacle over them. He himself will be their, their dwelling place. And because of his presence, they have provision. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. They have protection. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. It's, it's the reversal of the world as we now know it. But even in the world as we now know it, God is to a very real way all of these things to his people. Isn't that what, what David seeks to impress, uh, express to us in the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. His rod and his staff guide me. Even in the presence of my enemies, I will fear no evil. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. Look up. By looking around, it's not exactly obvious, is it, at times? But by looking up, this is who we are. It's not an exaggeration to say that God's people seemed, and perhaps today, seem very, very insecure. Week by week, we hear about persecution of God's people in different parts of the world. We know in a society that's becoming more secular and hostile to the gospel, we're beginning to feel a little bit of the chill winds of, of rejection. Maybe nothing more yet, but it's not pleasant. But if we're rejected by man and God spreads his tabernacle over us, we're still winners, aren't we? Persecuted and rejected by those who claim to be the people of God, coming under the uncomfortable scrutiny of the pagan Roman Empire, it seemed they could be just crushed out like a, an insect 
under your boot. Surely they couldn't last. But not only would they endure, they would triumph. The promises of God would be fulfilled, not in some other people, but in this people, the people of Jesus. Yes, Caesar, who at this time was persecuting, and that's why John was on the island of Patmos, he had an earthly throne, but even he was under the control of he who sits on the throne. The message of Revelation, which, which really ties together so many of the promises of the rest of the Bible, is this. The sufferings of this present age will and must and shall give way to the bright promise of eternal life. Hunger, thirst, persecution, alienation from family and friends, suffering, even death, where and are, in this time of tribulation, the reality for the people of God, but they're not the ultimate reality. They are a transient reality. They're a, a pathway to something more wonderful. And the focus is that God, the one who has made the promise, is the one in whom the promise is anchored and secured. God himself will spread his tent over us, verse 15. All our deepest needs and longings will be fully and forever fulfilled. Every experience that causes danger and pain will be banished, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus, who is in the midst of the throne, will personally and does personally shepherd his people. He will lead them, and even now he leads them, to the unfailing constant source of life and refreshment, God himself. So, what's some of the implications of this? Well, firstly, we have to be reminded again and again of who we really are. You're not who the world tells you you are. You are who God says you are. And your destiny is not what the world says your destiny is, to be mocked at, sneered at, and forgotten. Your destiny is to be before the throne of God and the Lamb forever, enjoying his presence and praising his grace. The message to the suffering church in the first century, to the suffering church in the 21st century, is still the same. Yes, we're going through a world of tribulation. It was ever so. Jesus told us it would be so. But he says, do not fear, I have overcome the world. Look up. See where all this is going. The great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep is even now shepherding to the eternal glory that he laid down his life for. This is the heart of the New Testament's encouragement for God's people. When we feel like quitting, when we when all the evidence of our eyes and our emotions say it's not worth it. God says, look again to me. Look at the lamb who was slain. 
the one who has the keys of death and hell, the one who can shout to the entire universe, I am he who was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I'm your shepherd. I'm your king. I'm the one who sits on the throne. You know, we can get caught up with, and I plead guilty here as much as anybody else, and worrying about what President Biden is going to do. My goodness, he could do anything. <laughs> what the World Economic Forum is going to do, what the World Health Organization is going to do. Do you know what? They can only do what he who sits on the throne permits them to do. And he permits it for his glory and our benefit. Writing to the church at Rome a few years before this, in the eighth chapter of his letter, Paul said this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He then goes on to conclude the chapter with these stirring affirmations, these questions which have within them the answer themselves. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He's saying there what, what he would say later on to Timothy. Remember, this is what we have to expect. In this world, we will have trouble. He goes on to say this. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here's his bottom line. And it has to be our bottom line as well. And I think it will be our bottom line when, like Abraham, we, we come out of the circumstances. If only for a few minutes, and instead of just looking around or looking in, we look up. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm not saying don't look around. We can't help but look around. I'm not saying don't look in. We have to do that too, but don't stop there. After you've looked around and looked in, don't forget to look up. Speaking of the awfulness of coming judgment, Jesus didn't say, when you see these things, run away and hide. He said, when you see these things, look up, for your redemption is drawing near. Amen.